By your endurance, you will gain your lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the days before Christianity, there were many people in the world who viewed time as a circle. Time as a circle. The course of events, some philosophers thought, has been perpetually repeating itself since before anyone can remember. See, of course, a circle doesn't really have a beginning, nor does it really have an end. Whether you go forward or backward, it's just kind of round and round forever. And that's what they thought time is. You can see where they would get this idea. No one is surprised when leaves change colors and fall from trees around this time of year, right? It's a reliable event that comes back again and again, year after year, in a pattern seemingly without end. And no one was there, uh, no one was around when this rhythm took effect, right? So if you're just observing the world as it is and you see these rhythms, you see day after day the sun rising and falling, etc., etc., then you might think that's just what being is like, right? That's just the nature of reality. It's just this circle again and again, back to the same thing forever. From one perspective, this might seem comforting in the sense that it's reliable, right? You know what's coming. But if you think about it for a bit, it's hard to avoid the sense that many ancient people did in fact have, which is that such a world is ultimately pretty tragic and depressing. Think about it. If the way things are is the way they've always been and the way they'll be forever, then how could reality feel like anything but a never-ending disappointment? The world that we all experience is difficult and very often sorrowful, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you. And it was no less and probably more difficult and sorrowful for the people in the ancient world. Even those who are well-fed in this world are never guaranteed that there's not a drought right around the corner. And a perpetual recursion of feast and famine doesn't sound much like an eternity I want. Right? If that's the circle, just a, a feast and famine forever. It was into this cyclically conceived world that the gospel was first proclaimed. The gospel that was prepared for among the marginal and mysterious ancient people called Israel. Now, the Israelites rubbed shoulders often, culturally and socially and in their writings and so forth, with peoples influenced by this common cyclical view of time. But their conception of time was quite different. Time, for the Israelites, had a clear beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis said. Things were not always the way they are now. Once, there was no world at all. There was only God, and God himself spoke the world into being. Originally, that world was at peace, and the human beings whom God made as the stewards and priests of his creation existed in harmony with it, having a kind of intuitive grasp by grace of God's light in all things. 
But that harmony was broken when man chose his own way over the word of God. And now, in our own experience, we suffer the effects of that brokenness all around us and within us. But Israel knew that that wasn't the end of the story. Where we are now is not the end of the story. Just as they looked backwards to an original peace, so they looked forwards to a final restoration. God would send his Messiah to establish his kingdom on earth, to drive out all causes of sin and strife, and to spread his glory over all things as the waters cover the sea, as Isaiah says. Israel had a sense, in other words, of history. History, a progression of events from beginning to end, more like a line than a circle. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because it means that in this biblical view, your life is not just a meaningless cycle of mornings and evenings, endlessly repeated, coming from nowhere and going to nowhere. You began in God's creative word, God's creative mind, and you're being led to his eternal purpose for you by his providential wisdom, who uh, goes, stretches from end to end of creation and orders all things sweetly. And it's that sense of time and history, that sense of time as history, and not just a random cycle, meaningless cycle. You, know, you could almost say a pilgrimage rather than a merry-go-round. It's that sense of time as history that stands behind our gospel reading today. Jesus is talking about the end of history. Now, the word end, as you probably know, can have two, at least two different meanings. First, it can mean the termination or the limit, the boundary of something. Right, so like I came to the end of the road and then I couldn't go on anymore, so I turned around, right? It's the, the limit, the finish line. But it can also mean, in a second sense, the goal of something, right? The aim or purpose of some project or plan. What's your end in doing that, right? It's, it's what you're doing it for. It's the why behind your activity, behind the pilgrimage. The Greek word for this is telos. Jesus' words today concern the end in both senses, the end of the world in both of these senses, right? Both the terminus and the telos, the finale and the goal of history. Now, the key and somewhat intimidating word to think about here in relation to this gospel is the word apocalypse. Now, this word is often used to refer to the great stress and trial that will come upon the world when God finally and decisively intervenes to bring history to its culmination. But its more basic meaning has to do with end of the world in that second sense. The apocalypse is what discloses the true purpose of the world, its true end, its true goal, what life and history is ultimately about, what, or more properly, who it's for. Apocalypse really just means revelation. Two words mean the same thing. One's rooted in Greek, the other's rooted in Latin. But what they both mean is unveiling, a kind of pulling back of the curtain of reality that ordinarily hides our vision from what's most basic and what's most real, 
what's truest and holiest at the center of all things. It's a pulling back of that curtain. So if we combine these two senses of the word end, then apocalypse is about God's sure and certain promise finally and definitively to bring the world to its ultimate fulfillment and consummation at the last day, right? To bring it to its purpose when it comes to its completion and for all eternity. This is why, by the way, we read this text, this passage from Luke today. There's a season uh, that is coming just around the corner in the church in just a few weeks called Advent. And during the season of Advent, we think very deeply not just about the first coming of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate at Christmas, but the second coming of Jesus as well. And so this text today is sort of beginning to prime us for that, to, to, to begin to think about that second coming of our Lord. Now, Christians believe that in Jesus Christ, the apocalypse has already arrived. Jesus himself is the full and final revelation of God, the truest unveiling of the holiest center of reality, right? Jesus shows us what's actually at the center of things. The deeper you penetrate into the heart of things, into the heart of reality, the clearer Jesus' face becomes to you. Now, I don't know how many of you might have uh, an image or an icon of Jesus that's really familiar to you, but for me, it's an icon called the Christ Pantocrator. That's a Greek word again. That means um, the ruler of all. Christ, the ruler of all. And it's an icon that comes from the 6th century, actually. It's very old. Uh, from this monastery on Mount Sinai called St. Catherine, St. Catherine's Monastery. It's a very famous icon. It's a really wonderful picture of Jesus just as kind of giving this, this gentle uh, uh, light um, gaze upon those who, who view this icon, right? And you have this sense that um, this is the face that's at the heart of all things. This is the face that's at the center of reality. This is the person who regally and calmly and gently presides over all things, right? Governing all things by his word of power. And so whenever life feels unstable for me, whenever the ground feels like it's it's shaking under my feet, when it feels like all things are spinning and I don't know what I'm doing or where I'm going, I think of that icon. I think of that picture of Jesus at the center of, of the, the spinning world, the still point at the center of the turning world, as T.S. Eliot says. And I remember that that's the face that is looking at me, right? That's the face that loves me, and that's the face that's in charge. So I encourage you to find an image like that, and and have that in mind as the face, the gentle, loving power at the center of all reality. Of course, the gospel today and Jesus' words in it themselves might induce a bit of vertigo for us, right? They might cause us to spin a little bit. Jesus talking about earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and famines and so forth. If Jesus himself is already intervening in the world as the apocalypse, right, as the revelation of God, then why, we might ask, is he also predicting here that such 
dramatic convulsions will come upon the world as it approaches its culmination. Or we might put the question another way and say, why didn't Jesus himself bring the world to completion, right? Why didn't Jesus bring the world to its fulfillment, its blessed end 2,000 years ago when he walked the earth? Why didn't Jesus purify the world of all sin and suffering then and consummate the union of heaven and earth? Well, besides the obvious answer to that question, that in that case, you and I wouldn't be here, I think the question actually helps us to get at the heart of what the gospel is saying today. That is the question why Jesus uh, didn't completely finish the work of his new creation in his first coming. We don't know when the curtain will finally drop on the drama of this world, and Jesus explicitly warned us not to try to guess. What this means is that, in a certain sense, the scenario Jesus describes today in Luke is always the state of things in our pilgrimage through this world. It's understandable that people might read passages like this one in Luke in times like ours and try to correlate the events Jesus describes with current events in our own day, right? It's, it's an eerily accurate description, after all, in, in many ways of the things that we've been going through, the terrors and earthquakes and natural disasters and wars and pestilences and pandemics and so forth. So it's understandable uh, to try to correlate those events. But I think to do so would be to miss the deeper and much more important point here. The point is that when God reveals himself to the world in Jesus, the world's instinctive reaction is to reject him. The world's instinctive reaction is to writhe and squirm in its human, subhuman, and superhuman arenas. So in society, in human arena, wars and rebellions, in nature, in the subhuman arena, earthquakes and pestilences, and in the angelic celestial world, right, the superhuman world, in tears and great signs from heaven, as the principalities and powers rage against their creator. The world that I'm talking about here, the world that rages against its creator, is a, a different sense than when in scripture it says that God loves the world. That's one sense of world, the world that God created and made and wants to redeem. But the other sense of world is the sense that creation has rebelled against its maker, right? It's creation insofar as it has rebelled against the God who loves it. The world, in this sense, avoids, tries to avoid at least, the gripping immediacy of God's painfully fiery mercy. There's an analogy to this in our human relations. People's mercy towards us is not always so welcome if, say, we have some prior suspicion of their intentions or resentment that they have at their disposal some charity that they're able to give to us, which we think we sh should have been in our power in the first place, right? How come they get to show mercy to us? We should have been the ones showing mercy to them. And so maybe we reject their kindness. Maybe we just try to avoid that mercy altogether. 
That's sort of what the world does when God unveils his mercy. As John says in his gospel, he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. Now, the world in this sense of resisting God's mercy is, in a certain way, in each one of us. So here's the real message from our passage today, the real message of this apocalyptic gospel Jesus gives us. In the midst of that rebellious world, a rebellion against God that happens even in our own souls sometimes, in the midst of that world, God calls forth a people to leave behind the habits of rebellion and to turn in surrender to him. That's what the church is. That's what we're gathered here for today. It's people who have surrendered their naturally self-defensive wills, self-defensive against the mercy and love of God, which wants to invade our most intimate places, the most intimate corners of our hearts, which we might rather sometimes just hide from God. The church is those who have surrendered that space to God. And when Jesus speaks to the apostles, what he says in that passage, that gospel this morning, he's speaking to us too. And here's what he says. You will continue to exist in this time between my first coming and my second coming in a world that rages against God's love. You will find that rage everywhere, in wars and tumults, in earthquakes and famines, in persecutions and adversities, in hatred and scorn, in others, in yourself. Even sometimes from those who are closest to you, your nearest relations. You will continue to find this even in yourself. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid in the midst of this world. Because if the world hates you, it hated me first. And I have overcome the world. I've overcome it not by pummeling it into submission, not by manipulating others in order to ensure my survival, but rather by living out a gentle obedience to God in the midst of this violent world. And that gentle obedience by which I said no to all rage and resentment, even against those who nailed me to the cross, by that gentle obedience, I have won your salvation. I've won the salvation of all. That salvation is ours, friends. Even today, even now, in a world that just seems to get more and more out of control. God has given us this time between the times, the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, so that we can learn to share Jesus' patience, so that we can be brought up into his gentle obedience to the Father and give that same kind of love, that same kind of reverence and honor and devotion to our God, who is also his God, to our Father, who is also his Father. We can become in him, ourselves, little Christs. And if we can become little Christs, well, that, me that means we become little revelations of the divine life. We become ourselves, each of us, an apocalypse, a revelation, an unveiling of God in this world 
by the power of Jesus in us. By your endurance, he says, you will gain your lives. Look to Jesus, that gentle Savior, the face at the center of a spinning world, regally presiding, guiding all things to, its, to their end, to their completion, their purpose. Look to him, who, though he was crucified by the world, looked upon his persecutors with nothing but blessing on his lips. And find in him the power to show forth God's love in all the most unsteady and difficult and seemingly apocalyptic circumstances of your life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.